Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. My name is Tim Malloy, and today our guest is one of the greatest actors of our time, Regina King, who just made her directorial debut with the brand new film, One Night in Miami. A by no means complete list of her work includes a trio of John Singleton films, Jerry Maguire, Southland, Watchmen, and her Oscar-winning role in Barry Jenkins, If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm pretty sure Regina King is the award-winningest person we've ever had on this podcast. She also has a Golden Globe and four Emmys, and with One Night in Miami, she looks likely to add to that count, this time in the directing categories. One Night in Miami imagines a closed-door meeting of Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Cassius Clay, who will soon change his name to Muhammad Ali, one night in 1964. It's based on the play of the same name by Kemp Powers. Regina King spoke with me in November from Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she's shooting her new film, The Harder They Fall. And I'm also very excited to tell you that she's on the cover of the latest issue of Movie Maker Magazine. More details on that at the end of the episode. And now, Regina King, director of One Night in Miami, streaming now on Amazon Prime. We have something in common. We both grew up in L.A. in the 80s. Very few of us <laughs> in this industry. I guess a lot of us. Um, <laughs> did you like it? I mean, was your experience good? Oh, my God. Absolutely. I love L.A. I, 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 I always say I bleed purple and gold. I'm not a baseball fan, but if the Dodgers make the playoffs, I'm talking shit. You know? <laughs> I read that your mom was known as Yoda and sort of, I guess, because she did Jedi mind tricks. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, uh, people, friends over the years um, have always felt like my mother has had the power to get you to do something that you don't want to do that you maybe need to be doing without telling you that you need to do it. And uh, so she fondly uh, was named Yoda. I can't remember which one of our friends first uh, <laughs> gave her that, but uh, my sister and I thought that it was appropriate because she's very good at, and I think it actually kind of even started from, like we kind of grew up, um, we are big vegetable eaters in our, in, in our home. So like growing up, you know, like, how kale is all the crave and the rave now. You know, we grew up eating kale. Like my mother made kale opposed to collard greens. And um, so, you know, when you'd have friends come over and she, you know, we love beets and, you know, the <laughs> vegetables that aren't the most popular, like jicama, people would be like, what's jicama, you know? And so we would have friends that would come over that would say that they don't like vegetables or they don't like something. And she would get them to try it without saying, try it. Like <laughs> she would just, you know, first of all, my mom can eat anything and just the way her mouth moves makes it look good. Like she should be, she could promote any food uh, just by seeing her eat it. And I think just, her enjoyment when she'd be eating something, her joy with serving us. Seems like she would probably put on a little extra 
when people <laughs> would say they didn't like a certain food, she would go extra hard in making it look like you're missing out on an opportunity of tasting something golden, but she would never say it. It's the whole converting people by example, not by proselytizing. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that something you've picked up on? I mean, as a filmmaker now? Huh. I don't know that it's something that I, it's something that I'm very much aware of. I won't say that I do it all the time, but I will say that it has been a useful communication tool for some, um, some actors. Because, you know, that's one of the thing about directing. You have to understand that what uh, is needed when you're communicating with one actor to, uh, to, to develop a certain shorthand is not the same with another. There's a lot of psychology involved. Yeah. And so I will say that I've had to do things such as maybe point out how incredible someone else may be doing that makes that actor go, oh, okay, I wanna do it too. <laughs> I mean, to go by example, you had just gotten an Oscar when you were directing this movie, right? Yes, I did. Well, not when I was directing, but when I, I just uh, secured the job, mm -hmm. maybe about two, two or three weeks before the Oscars, yeah. Okay, so that must help when you walk on set and they know not only your entire body of work, but also know that you're kind of coming in hot. Um, <laughs> they must have a sense of, I want to impress her. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you'd have to ask that, you know, any particular actor that, but I will say that I do uh, feel like people respect, um, you know, a note from me, you know, probably my uh, track record might have something to do with that. You know, <laughs> they, they, they consider a note that I may give. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talked to a lot of people about how they broke into the industry and you have kind of an amazing story because you've been in the industry since you were, I think, 13 years old with 227. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there wasn't like a, the breakthrough moment came, must have come when you were like 12 or 13. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Tim. I, I kind of look at at my career as a series of breakthrough moments. You know, I don't think that it was just one in particular. And I, I think that that's kind of been, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, um, my approach when it comes to just life and, 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 and growth and um, um, goals, you know, yeah. that, um, you know, once you reach, a goal or have a, a breakthrough moment, um, you know, then, then it's time for the next one. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I, I think people who are successful and tend to just have a lifetime of success, they're always, the ceiling is always being broken. It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember listening to you. I think it was with, uh, must have been NPR. We said that when you got the Oscar, you looked at that as 
well, how do I translate this to the next thing as opposed yeah. to this is the end? Right. You know, I've done it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so one of the first big successes as you transition to adult roles, there's three John Singleton films. Did you interact with him at all at USC? I know you're younger than him. Um, you know, God rest his soul. But yeah. did you encounter him at USC? Did you know of him? I did. I knew of him, but I did not um, ever like cross paths with him. He told me that he saw me a couple times hmm. um, at school, uh, and he was like, "There goes that girl from Two Two Seven." He said he said that with you know his 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 crew of of of, of um, Trojan mates. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, um, our interaction really started like, like I, I, obviously I auditioned for Boys in the Hood, um, got to know him a bit on Boys in the Hood, but I would say after I auditioned and gotten the part for, um, Poetic Justice, yeah, that was when our relationship really, um, was solidified that where 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 while we were working together as actor director our relationship outside of that and getting to know, know each other really happened during poetic justice he really opened me up to um he gave me an opportunity to see behind the scenes what a director does in film that i never really had that uh opportunity or experience before yeah and you got to work with somebody from your alma mater who you worked with for several films when you were really young i mean yeah was, was that where the first seed was planted for directing or was it somewhere else i think the first seed was planted there but i don't know that i knew that it was being planted you know i, I do you know when i think back on to um the time spent together and I think about how much excitement I would have when he'd call and I'd go over there and we would watch movies or he would share with me um, what was, uh, uh, what, what inspired a certain thought for a scene or when he would share with me something else that he was writing on. I remember how much excitement I would get uh, and how much I would just drink up what he was sharing with me. Yeah. Um, but in the moment, I was not aware that um, a future director was 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 being birthed. I, I, I did not see it that way. I just saw it as, you know, and, may, and maybe in a lot of ways, everything that he was sharing with me was also helping me as far as, you know, my journey as an actor as well, you know. Um, Definitely, those the, that time together definitely made me take a deeper interest in the storytelling process, like beyond just what and what what I do as an actor. Yeah, I don't know if it's my age or my demo or whatever, but I've seen Jerry Maguire like a hundred million times, and I just keep watching it and love it every time. And you're one of the best parts of it. Thank but that's you. A, that. I'm, it's another, I mean, you're kind of the soul of the movie. Like you're kind of the person who we all relate to because most of us aren't an agent or a football player. We <laughs> know someone like that and are trying to support them. Um, just watching it again recently, 
the way your character stands up to Tom Cruise, who's this, you know, the biggest movie star in the world. How did you do that? Like, how did you find the confidence to do that? You know, I think that was another, you know, when we talk about breakthrough uh, uh, moments that I think Jerry Maguire was, was, was that for me. Um, and uh, was one of those, I mean, for me. And I think, you know, just, I don't know about other actors, but I feel like a lot of the things that are going on in your life personally, those things inform a performance yeah. in a lot of ways. I just had my son. Mm. And so, you know, I've, I've, I was a home when I was auditioning for Jerry Maguire because I was pregnant. Mm. And then now I'm a mother. So, you know, when you become a parent, just everything else that was scary or uh, that you didn't feel confident about or you were apprehensive going into just kind of goes out the door because you're responsible for a being. Yeah. And I think probably all of those, um, um, those, those self-doubts and things that, that you have prior to that, because they were gone, I probably was not looking at it like, oh, this is Tom Cruise. You know what I mean? I think, I think you know, this was um, another opportunity, uh, an, an opportunity to play someone I've never played before. This was like, to me, in my opinion, the first woman I was playing at a time when I truly was feeling like a woman. You know, I'm a mother now. Yeah. You know, and I'm nursing and, you know, I'm there. There's just like a lot of things going on that are so much bigger than, um, you know, not that the film wasn't a big deal, but, you know, there's so much big, bigger than the, than, than, than the film, you know, because you're, you're, you're a mother. And then also, um, I feel like there was, um, a lot of chemistry that was already established with Cuba and I, because we had, yeah. um, he had already had the part, but he auditioned with me a couple times and then we had already done Boys in the Hood. So there, there was just like this natural, uh, uh, I think energy that Cuba and I brought to, to Marcy and Rod that made you believe like, this is this couple that have been together since high school that have been, yeah. you know, so, so there were just, things naturally that were happening or had happened in my life that I think you could feel in the performances. Do you have any, <laughs> any Tom Cruise stories, any like weird advice he gave you or anything like that? Uh, no, I don't really have um, any um, weird advice. I mean, you know, he, he, I, I've told this story before, but he, he did play like a practical joke on me, which I, you know, now I think it's funny, but, <laughs> but, you know, we were, like I said, you know, I'm nursing in between setups and, and, and things like that. So I'm just coming back from, from nursing, you know, my grandmother's in the trailer, you know, with oh, wow. Ian. So I'm just, kind of, you know, taking my time, coming back, and I get to the set, and I'm really taking my time, and Tom is like, Regina, Regina, we're rolling, and I'm like, <laughs> so I run to the set, and standing in the middle of the set is Steven Spielberg. Oh, my God. Like, 
<laughs> okay, like, you know, I, a heads up would have been good. You know, I might have wanted to come in reciting a monologue or something like that, like <laughs> working for the next job, you know. We'll be right back after this word from the industry. Jean-Luc Godard once said, cinema is Nicholas Ray. And in the 1950s, director Nicholas Ray was a mainstay in the industry. Directing classics like In a Lonely Place and Rebel Without a Cause, Ray's output in that decade was nothing less than prolific. But by the 1960s, his drinking, drug abuse, and gambling problems had made him a pariah in Hollywood. My name is Dan Delgado, and in the latest episode of The Industry, we take a look at when Nicholas Ray in the 1970s, after leaving Hollywood, found himself teaching at a college. Filming we did turned into all-night sessions. You know, we'd stay up all night. And even when students had classes the next morning. And took the opportunity to make one more film. So we loaded up a Cadillac with all the film and drove it across country without stopping. He never meant to finish it. You know, I was obsessed with this film. I thought it was a groundbreaking film. I thought that we were doing something that nobody else was doing. That's the latest episode of The Industry. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at moviemaker.com. How did you discover the play One Night in Miami that became the basis for this film? Did you go see the play? I did not. I was not even aware of the play. I, I um, told my uh, agent, um, Harley Copen, that I was, he was asking me uh, what I was interested in directing. What would I like as, as I'm starting to, as I am actively uh, looking to make my theatrical debut, what would I want that to be? And I gave him a few different um, uh, things that I was, stories that I'd be interested in telling. And one of them was that I wanted to tell a love story with a historical uh, backdrop. Yeah. And so he, a couple of weeks later, sent me one night in Miami and I was like, wow, he's mm. a great listener. And <laughs> <laughs> because it, while, while when I was saying that, I probably, when, when I was saying that, I was meaning it more like love story in the traditional sense of love story. But this film is is still a love story in, yeah. in, in my regard, in, in my opinion. Yeah. That's how I received it when I read the script. That's how I still received it when I read the play. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that's how it came to be. And, and then obviously, like, I, I had to audition for it. And um, yeah. Audition to direct it? Yes. Yeah, so like, you know, um, I've, I've at this point I've only directed, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a television. Music, so yeah, I really, yeah. you know, no one really knew if I could handle it. You know, well, there's people that's putting their money on the, a lot of, of responsibility in mm. your lap. So uh, I had to pitch them how I would tell the story, wh yeah. what I saw, and and they needed to feel that I was uh, confident and that I'd be able to, you know, uh, be the captain of the ship. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so yes. Yeah. So audition, I, I say audition because maybe that's the actor in me. Right. Um, 
uh, it felt like because it felt equivalent to an audition. But I, it was one that I, I, I welcome. I uh, wanted to do, I wanted to tell this story. I felt like I was the right director to tell the story. And so I, I welcomed the opportunity to let them know. I mean, I think that's been borne out in the response to it. And just to start, was there sort of an in for you? Was there one character who related to the most or felt the most protective of their story? Um, I feel like I related to all of the characters because one of the beautiful things that Kemp did when writing the piece is that he humanized them immediately. So yeah. they, they were black men that were familiar to me. You know, if you, if you just, you know, took the last names off and just called them Cassius, Malcolm, Sam, and Jim, you know, I've, I've got, the, whether it's a cousin Jim, Uncle Malcolm, you know, I, I've, I, I know these men. And um, so, so that was something. And then just as an actor, this was an actor's piece, yeah. you know, like, in my opinion, I was like, if I was an actor, and I heard that this project and I read this story, I would want in. Yeah. So, so I was attracted to it as an actor. So that's uh, um, another thing. But um, I think, you know, when you talk about a character specifically, um, I think we've seen more than any of um, these men being portrayed. We've seen Malcolm X portrayed more than any of the other um, uh, icons. And I, I, I really felt like this was a Malcolm X that I truly had never seen before. This yeah. Malcolm, I felt was, made, reminded me that he was a father, reminded me that he was a husband, reminded me of how much he was sacrificing, reminded me of how much he had to lose and how he's just never, but, but yet he still believed that this was what he was put on earth to do, to lead. Yeah. And, um, and how do you do that with all of these other things? Because we're all slashes. We're, we're, we're you're, you're not just Tim, I'm not just Regina, but you know, we, we're the journalist, an actor, a mother, you know, a brother, you know, we're so many different things. And, uh, I do believe just maybe that was something that stood out for me with Malcolm because Malcolm has been uh, portrayed more times than any of the other, mm -hmm. like I said, um, uh, I'm, I don't want to say characters because they're real people, but, um, but I, I feel like with all of them, there's a certain vulnerability or humanity that I don't think that we we look at them as deities. You don't get the opportunity to to consider that Jim could be a, per, a, a an introspective person, a person that just can listen and take everything in. And 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 when he does say something, it is something, you yeah. know. And and if you've looked at Jim in his interviews, you might have known that. But there aren't a lot of interviews out there with Jim Brown, you yeah. know. And there are more Muhammad Ali interviews. There are more a um, uh, 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 him interviews of him when he came back to boxing. We don't mm -hmm. get to see the 22 year old boy, boy man, <laughs> or man boy, or whichever you want to call <laughs> it. We don't 
get to see what what it must have felt like to have all of that on him. Um, yeah. and, and I feel like Kemp just did an amazing job on paper and me seeing these men in a way that I don't think a lot of us have ever considered. I feel exactly the same way. And, you know, Malcolm X struck me the most because, you know, I saw the Denzel Washington movie, of course, and I read his book and everything else. But I've, it never occurred to me until now that he's 39 when he dies. I mean, yeah. he's a young man. And yeah. every time he goes off and gives a speech, he has to leave his family behind. Like, yeah. I just never made that. Never, never, you never movie. think of that. You yeah. never think of that or consider that. I mean, I share the same um, um, sentiment prior to reading uh, One Night in Miami. You yeah. know, I, I never considered all of Malcolm's sacrifice. You know, the other thing that struck me as so brave in a different way than the way he's known for being brave is when he conveys to the other men how he intends for them to spend the big night after Cassius Clay's huge victory in the ring. It, it's not what you're expecting. What Kemp has done is they have unexpectedly fallen into a moment of a very private conversation. Yeah. And these conversations are conversations that happen all the time. Yeah. But of the audience, it, it, it's the audience meaning us or viewers, we are having an opportunity to be a fly on the wall during yeah. a really private conversation. And those private conversations, the reason why they're usually private, because the people that are engaging in the conversation usually have to, you know, shed their mask, usually have to shed uh, those things that we put up to protect ourselves every day, that we have to put up to protect ourselves every day. And um, whenever you get down to the nitty gritty, you know, you're kind of out there naked because you're, you're being honest about the things that are um, maybe the things that you don't think are the best uh, qualities about yourself. Um, when someone's calling you out on them, you know, maybe you, you get defensive and, and, and let's face it, we all want to be the representative. You know, yeah. like I always say that, and it's not my saying, but you know, it takes a couple years before you really get to know a person because you're always meeting their representative. They're like, <laughs> on behalf of Regina King, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it happens within friends and within brothers, within sisters, within families all the time. And um, I think that that's what makes, when you watch One Night in Miami, at least I hope, makes uh, these four men relatable in a way that no one ever thought that they could be. Yeah, yeah. I also feel like, and you've done amazing work on this, especially in the last few years, movies have kind of become the way that we learn history. And yeah. a lot of people, you know, you just might not know about something until you see a movie about it maybe you're just not old enough or whatever um and you introduce four really important people potentially to another generation and the other thing is at a time when people are you know 
election returns are coming in as we're talking. Like people are so divided and there's so much of like caricaturing people who you disagree with. Like I like that white people can be in a room with these four black icons and not see them as like what they're afraid they are. Like just see them as other human beings who have the same doubts and hopes that they do. I mean, I just, right. I, I don't know. I, I Occasionally in my life, I find myself being in one of those conversations and realizing like this is a moment like we've actually kind of crossed the line right and the whole movie feels like that yeah it's interesting that you said that because i feel like that's what what's unfortunate but about just american culture that we are so scared to have those conversations and any of us that have had the opportunity to, that find ourselves in those conversations, we realize by the end of it or within it, like this is not to keep using it, but this is a breakthrough moment. Because yeah. it's one thing having the conversation amongst people that have had the same experience. Yeah. It's another thing having conversations with people who've had a different experience and, and coming together to, uh, or agreeing that, yes, your your experience is different than mine and yours is valid. I think so often because of the way our uh, history has been written in America, it's been revised so much, so many years that, you know, there's a, a, a large group of people in America that when the George Floyd incident happened, and the incident will murder happen yeah. that um, they had never seen that. And yeah. so now someone had a camera op uh, uh, on that man. And, and not only do they have it on the man, it was a close up. So you can see the, the, the disregard for life in his eyes. And so yeah. when you talk to a black person who has seen that face before many times, in different forms, a different person, but have seen it before, then you finally go, you can actually have empathy. And, and so that's why I felt One Night in Miami was very important because the conversations that are being had in 1964, the same conversations that we're having in 2020, and that's, that is, that is, that's sad. That's, that's, yeah. that shows how much progress has not been made, how much it has been just become more and more part of a system, part of the norm that uh, uh, it feels, I've read somewhere where someone who had seen One Night in Miami had actually said that I feel like they were just pointing, nodding a finger to uh, what's going on now. And I was like, ooh, so... I can pretty much guess that that person that's saying that is not black. I can pretty much guess that the person is saying that probably could be young yeah. and, and not realize that, no, it's not nodding a finger. It's actually just showing that this is the same conversation. So um, it's really interesting that that person would receive it like that. Um, it's also because the majority of people who have watched it don't receive it like that. They're either reminded or go, wow, I just never even, I never even considered. I never even thought 
about how what they're talking about in 64 is prescient. Yes. You, you know, until I'm watching the film in the midst of everything that's going on in our country right now. Yeah. I, I mean, one, one of the commonalities we have growing up in LA in the 80s is seeing Rodney King. And I, I just feel like we're seeing it like kind of the exact same thing again. And yeah. it's just, it's sad to see it, but you also see people make little bits of progress. And right. That's encouraging. And well, we have to be encouraged by the little bits because if we yeah. don't, then we're going to just sink off. And then what's the point of living? What's the point of anything? You know, yeah. what's the point of trying to leave a place, a better place for those that come after us? So, yes, we see uh, little bits. And I, I do feel like it's our responsibility as journalists. It's our responsibility as storytellers to... Um, um, to, to correct um, what's been wrong for so long by using our talents, by using our gifts. I mean, that's part of, you know, the reason why we were given the gifts that we were given. Maybe this is how I get into Southland and, and Watchmen because, you know I, know, I know from other interviews that you're not, you weren't seeking out like law enforcement roles or you weren't seeking out roles about criminal justice. They just kind of came your way and they spoke to you, but to have you portraying these people in a nuanced way and showing the doubts that they have, I think it kind of helps audiences think like, maybe not every cop is 100% on board with a Rodney King or a George Floyd situation. And they're torn, like your characters are sometimes torn between like towing the line and doing what they know is the right thing. I don't know, I think anything you do to sort of muddle up the cartoon caricature is really helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and the thing about it is, it's like, you know, when we, uh, for me with Southland going into it, obviously, you know, prior to Southland, my relationship with law enforcement was not one of um, trust. Yeah. And so going into Southland, uh, the, reading the pilot, I thought it was, I thought it was amazing is because I, I felt like, I was really getting to know the people that were the officers and then also some of the policing that was happening. They, were, they didn't try to make it like they were the heroes. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, some shit was fucked up, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, okay. And then, you know, so when I got the part, and we started doing the training and a lot of our training was not just the physical training and, and um, the, uh, the weapons training, it was the, the, the psychology training, the understanding what, it, what, what, what we would have had to go through to become a cop. And you know, with every role that I play, I always kind of develop a backstory um, whether or not it becomes part of the story, but it just gives me a true place of this is who Lydia Adams is. And so if, if, if something else comes up in writing or, or uh, um, someplace I'm not sure of with performance, I know that, you know, Lydia went to this school, this was, these were her parents, this, you know, was her relationship with men, 
these were her siblings or did she not have siblings? You know, in Lydia's case, she didn't. Um, you know, uh, th that, that is my Bible for, for, for Lydia. And what I found was I, I really get, had the opportunity of working really closely um, to a, a retired officer named Sheila Daniel. And she was obviously, you start off as a first responder, but then you, she became a detective. And so just, and she's a mother uh, and, and just spending so much time with her just really made me understand and, and, and the, how someone could love a, a, a job that puts them in harm's way, that also puts the, that, that they know the um, being black, the black community does not trust, but yet, and Sheila wasn't black, but she definitely um, was very sensitive to the relationship between black people and, and, and law enforcement. Yeah. And um, just, it, it made me, just it made me understand the passion that a police officer can have and infuse some of that passion into Lydia and, and have an understanding to why Lydia would continue to want to be in this, um, have this career choice. In all honesty, most of the officers that we worked with that we got to know really well are probably some of the most compassionate, yet broken people <laughs> I've ever met because they do have a disconnect when it comes to talking to, that's the reason why a lot of off cops marry cops yeah. because it's a lifestyle that if you're not a cop, you just really have a hard time understanding. You know, that's why you see cop families, you know, yeah. it's not just one cop in the family. Yeah. Usually there are several cops in a family and, um, so I really was able to appreciate um, law enforcement on a level that I would have never, if you would have asked me that in 1990, I would have been like, F that, heck no. Uh, yeah. Police officer doesn't have my best interests, you know, at, yeah. at, at heart. And, and you can see now, now that cell phone videos are out, why black yeah. communities feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> My last question, since you've completed One Night in Miami, have you taken a moment to just kind of pat yourself on the back and say, I feel really good about this. I'm really proud of this and glad for what I've accomplished. I guess I have. Um, yeah. I mean, just because, you know, when it was time to let it go, when it was the final, no more, it had to be locked. I did not want that to happen. You know, there was still things that I could see uh, could be done, but... Um, I was able to share that moment with the producers and my incredible editor, Tarek. Oh my God, he's just amazing. And um, our uh, post sound team. So that moment happened and, and they kind of surrounded me and, and made, made me take that moment. And I, I really am grateful for them for that because I look at the photograph that they took because they put one of my favorite images on the screen, um, on the sound stage, and you know, just kind of let made sure I took it in. 
So that w- I, I don't think I would have had that moment if they didn't say, stop. Ah, this I love that. This is wonderful. And just take it in, you know? And so I did. Hey, it's Tim. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest, Regina King, and congratulations to her on her directorial feature debut, One Night in Miami, which I highly recommend you check out now on Amazon Prime. You can find our cover story on her in the film at moviemaker.com. You can also subscribe there to the digital or print edition of Movie Maker. And you know what? We're really proud of this cover story, so maybe this is a mistake, but the first 10 people who email me at tim.molloy at moviemaker.com, I'm going to make sure you get a copy in the mail. You're going to have to include your address and stuff, but, you know, let's do it. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us and all that stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe. You know what to do. And we'll see you back here very soon. Thank you.